Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I love you. God loves you more. If no one's told you that today, I hope you, if you don't get anything from the message, I hope you get that. But today's message is going to be a tough one. And I know there's going to be people that are going to be upset about this. And you can email Dave Morley at sfchurch.com. He pulled that one on me a few weeks ago when he was preaching. Um, but I want to pray. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3. This is a topic today that most people just ignore, don't talk about, or will disagree with. And so we're just going to see what God has to say about it. And I'm going to ask that God would open our hearts and we'd receive his love from this text and uh, that we'd experience him today. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. And I pray for our kids that are over on Bridge Kids, for the students that are meeting, uh, for the middle school students right now, and the just hundreds of folks around this campus and people in this room and online. Open our hearts to what you have for us today. Speak to us. Open our eyes to see you, to see your love, to see your pursuit, to see your grace. And Father, will you transform us in whatever way you desire today? I know that each one of us have things that need to be changed about our thinking, changed about our, our hearts, and sin that needs to be purified. Whatever needs to happen, God, if there's somebody who needs to be saved, would you do that? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've probably all seen the different memes or the hashtags where they say the struggle is real. If you haven't, I've got a couple. If you made it through the toilet paper um, shortage of 2020, you might have seen this. Somebody cutting their paper towel in half. The struggle is real. Or maybe you had an experience this morning. That's why you come to the second service. Every morning you don't like when the alarm clock goes off. And so what you see, it doesn't matter what the numbers are, you don't like them. The struggle is real. And usually what happens is people use that hashtag or those memes to kind of ironically talk about things that aren't really that big of a deal, but that are a frustration in life. It's almost like another way of saying first world problems. Like yesterday I was talking to my wife, I'm like, why do we not have any forks? Like we have all these knives, but why, where are all our forks going? And then all, for my own personal struggle in our home is I'll buy ankle socks and they just keep disappearing. Like I can't find them anywhere. And so I'm like watching my kids' feet. I'm waiting for them to wear them. Hey, those are mine. Like I'm just waiting for that moment. I believe in my mind that in several years when all the kids are moving out of the house, we're going to be like renovating one of the rooms or something, and there's going to be like a store, like a treasure chest storage bin of all the essential items in our house they've been hiding on us as kind of like a practical joke, and the struggle is real. Our refrigerator right now doesn't work. <laughs> well, it works. Uh, it just doesn't have all the, the luxury features that I have grown accustomed to. And so on the front, there's, the ice is supposed to dispense out of the front of the refrigerator, and it won't dispense. Warm water forever. I'm not opening the fridge and pulling the ice out from the inside. The struggle is real. Don't you see how hard life can be? <laughs> and so usually we use that statement to kind of make fun of the fact of this isn't really that big of a deal, but it's kind of a frustration. But the reality is there's real struggles in life. I was listening to a guy uh, just talk about what some of his life is like. He, his name is Boyd Verity. If you want to look him up, he's a lion tracker. He owns a, a safari company in Africa. And so his life's very different than mine. I found it very interesting. And he was talking about one time that he was leading a group on a safari and they were trying to track different animals, lions and elephants and different things and had had a successful day, but it was a very hot day in Africa. I don't know if there are days that are not very hot in Africa, but he said it was a very hot day. And he said, so I left our group up behind underneath a tree in the shade and then myself, another tracker, started walking down this, it was a channel of water, we would kind of call it a river, but it was just a place where there was a ravine and water had filled it up. And so he was going down through it and he said, the water was really clear. You could see the sand underneath. And my friend Sully, the other tracker, was up on the, the bank. And I was walking through it because it wasn't that deep. It was below his knee. And he said, up in the distance, I could see there was a tree that had fallen into the water. 
and there was a shadowy area around the tree. He said if it was a horror movie, as you were watching it, you'd say, don't go by the shadowy area. The music would have changed, he said. But I thought he was used to the environment, and he thought he knew well enough. This water is too shallow for a crocodile. So he walks up. You can see where the story's going. He sits on the edge of this tree in the shadowy area, and he said, when a crocodile bites you, the first thing you realize is the ferocity and the pressure of the teeth. And so it grabbed a hold of his leg. He's on this tree, so he said he grabbed a hold of the branches of the tree, and the crocodile starts pulling him and shaking him to try and get him into the deep water. If you know how crocodiles work, that's their strategy. And he says, so I'm grabbing a hold of the branch. My friend Sully's up on the bank. He can see what's happening, but what's he going to do? And so this crocodile is shaking him back and forth. And he says, and it went for a second bite. It, it gasped. And he says his exact statement, by God's grace, I was able to put my foot down in his throat, which I thought, that's God's grace? He's going to swallow you, is like what I was thinking as he's saying this. And he said, but it, it caused the crocodile to, to start to cough and spit him out. And so at that moment, he started to climb up into the tree and as he climbed up into the tree, he looked down and he saw his leg. He said it was mangled, flat, it was just torn to pieces. And he goes, and I made a commitment in my mind at that moment never to look at that again. <laughs> and then he fell on the bank where at the moment he was safe. I'm going to guess that most of us have never had that struggle. But we've had real struggles. Real struggles in relationships. Real struggles with finances real struggles with loss of loved ones, real struggles with disease, real struggles. If you're a follower of Christ, the Bible guarantees you've had a real struggle with sin because either you're fighting the sin or you're surrendering to it. And we all know the struggle that, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 where there's inside of us a desire that we want to do what is right or righteous. But also there's a desire at the same time to do what's wrong. It's like there's this conflict even within us. And when you read the New Testament, the image is not of a, a crocodile, but of a lion, it's the same idea. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, is going around like a lion looking for whom he may devour. So there's a real struggle. And the question for followers of Christ is, is real victory possible? And it is. And God provides ways for that to become a reality. Not just that you're forgiven at the cross and positionally righteous before God, but that you can walk in a life of righteousness. The problem is we don't like the solution. And we're going to look at it today in our passage, or in Hebrews chapter 12. We've been in verses 1 and 2, but Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start reading in verse 3 in just a moment. But by way of reminder, Hebrews, remember, comes to us and says that God speaks in many ways throughout many days. And we talked about in the first message in this series. Talk through a donkey. He can talk audibly. He can impress you your heart. He can convict you. He can use other people. Like God can speak in lots of ways. But the question for us is, well, how's he speaking today? And this book says, through Jesus and then the beginning of the book is all about how Jesus is great. It's not just what he says, it's who he is. He's greater than everybody, everything, every idea, anything you can come up with. Jesus is greater. Amen? And then it talks about what he says. He says, don't drift. It's a bunch of warnings. Don't let your heart get hardened. Don't grow weary. And then the part of the book that we're at now, it says positively, move forward. Move forward in your faith. You're, you're not yet a Christian, trust Christ. You're a baby Christian, let's move to toddler. You're a toddler, let's move to teen. You're a teen, let's, move, let's keep moving forward in our faith. And the way that it's been talked about in Hebrews chapter 12 is a running analogy. Keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. You have a race to run. You don't have to run my race, I don't have to run your race. We all have a race to run, our own race, but we don't run alone. Keep an eye on the cloud. 
Not that you pay $2.99 to Apple for every month. Cloud of witnesses. It's a way of saying that you've got all these people from Hebrews chapter 11 cheering you on. You can do it. It's worth it. Keep going. Keep running this race. Well, how do I do that? Passionately pursuing joy. Well, how do I do that? Remember it said last week, throw off everything, everything, even good things that would hinder you from pursuing Jesus. Sometimes that's relationships. Sometimes it's sin from the past. Sometimes it's your emotional baggage. Throw it all off. And sin. And we didn't spend much time talking about that. That's where we pick up today. Look what it says in verse 3. Consider him, talking about Jesus, consider him who endured, so keep going, from sinners, wasn't his own sin, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't quit. Don't give up. Same message. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, there's the real struggle, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He did. You haven't. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly. And here's our topic for today. The discipline of the Lord. In these seven verses, we're going to see this word discipline nine times. It's clearly the topic at hand. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Okay, so you're not receiving discipline means you're not even really in the family. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as they as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. So that's part of the race. Part of the pursuit is pursuing holiness. Verse 11, for, the, for at the moment, the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Interesting contrast, those two words, pain and pleasure, painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Oh, wow, way to wrap that up with the word trained. Discipline, 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 then training. And it talks about at the very beginning that we're in a struggle, a battle with sin. Did you see that in verse 4? Whose sin are we talking about here? In your struggle against sin, against your sin, or against somebody else's sin? Jesus is being used. Jesus didn't have any sin, and, and so he's struggling with sin. But then these believers here, they're facing persecution. The pressure's starting to come on. And so Bible commentators will argue about this. Is it internal sin? Is it sin coming from without? And I think the answer is, yep. Both. Yeah, there's a battle. There's just, we just live in a place where there is sin, there's sin that comes against us. There just is sin, and that this world's broken. I loved what TJ, our, our worship leader, said that his kids' children's Bible, what does it say, that there's coming a time when all sadness will be untrue? Yeah, because it was un, there was no sadness in the garden when there was no sin. But after Genesis chapter 3, now we live in this place that's broken and there's sadness, sin. But then we see at the end of the book, the Bible, Revelation, that there's going to be no crying, no pain, because the sin's going to be taken care of. It's all gone. But we're still here. And what happens for many of us as followers of Christ is we love how Jesus dealt with our sin for eternity. But if we want to get honest about how he's dealing with sin in our lives today, presently, we don't like that. In other words, salvation and sanctification. We like what he did for eternity, salvation. We don't like what he's doing presently, sanctification. Because one of the things he's using, the, the penalty for sin is gone, by the way. That's dealt with. 
but there's a presence and a power of sin that we're still battling. There's a battle that's taking place. And some of us get this false idea that if I just followed Jesus really well, it'd be like a good PR move for us. Like, right, you see these people on social media that are like, oh, the reason why people are mad at Christians is because you're so hateful if you'd just be more loving. And it's like, well, really the Bible actually says no matter how I live out this Christianity, if I'm following Jesus, people are going to hate me. It actually says that. John chapter 15, verse 18. So I don't care what your friend tweeted. Here's what Jesus said. And 44 characters or less. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. (laughs) He said, hey, the the world hates you. They hated me first. And in fact, then it promises in 2 Timothy that if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, probably not in a bunch of graduation cards out there. (laughs) Promises for graduates. I thought this week it'd be fun if somebody in our church wrote uh, The Contrarian's Guide to Graduate Promises and took difficult promises in the Bible that nobody wants to claim and then gave life lessons from it. In this world, you will have trouble. Here you go, graduate. Let's talk about some things I've learned. You will be persecuted. <laughs> like, just think, of, rejoice in your trials. Like, think about the ones you could grab. They're, they're in there. And so, anyway, get back to the message. Here's the deal. You can live this out faithfully and you're still going to struggle. And... Um, Part of that is God's plan. And that's why some of us aren't going to like this message. See, this message, the way this passage is laid out, there's a problem and there's a promise. We're going to talk about the problem first, and then we're going to get to the promise. It's a simple outline. But the problem is pain. And the problem with our pain is that many of us think that our pain, we mistake our pain for God's punishment. We mistake our pain for God's punishment. That's the problem. We're going to talk about the promise a little bit later, but the problem is that. And so what takes place is, is that some of you are followers of Christ and some of you aren't. This was written to people that are followers of Christ. And so there's a a huge difference in this topic for the two of us. When you experience pain, which is oftentimes God's discipline, the text said in the passage, in the moment, it's not pleasant, it's painful. You're not being punished. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, you might be. You might be getting a small sampling of God's wrath in your life. But for all of us, We experience it as suffering, trial, tragedy, difficulty. And here's the hard part about teaching this to you, especially in one sermon, is is what's happened for many of us as Christians is we've settled for like cheesy and cheap answers to really big questions and really tough stuff. And I think social media is just feeding this and making it worse. We think a meme is going to like solve some political argument or we think, you know, if I just put the right tweet out there then I can help somebody in their, their pain and like you might be able to catalyze some conversation with that stuff. But life's messy. And what happened, I think one of the best things that's happened to this generation has been Netflix. You're like, a pastor, so that, um, there's a bunch of trash on there, so I'm not saying because of that, or like, whatever, Apple TV or Amazon or whatever you stream stuff through, because it's changed the way that stories are getting told. The way that stories were often told before uh, to a previous generation was through like sitcoms. Here's how a sitcom goes. There's a problem at the beginning, whatever it is, could be trite, could be significant. There's a problem at the beginning, and then there's going to be a commercial break, and then there's going to be a, a moment of twist, and then there's a commercial break, and then there's going to be a solution to the problem, and then there's going to be a commercial break, and then there's resolution. That's how the story gets told every time. It could be a comedy, it could be a romance, it could be a tragedy, that, that's how they tell the story. And what's happened now is that we'll watch a show, instead of it being in 30 minutes with only about 18 minutes of content, it's about 22 hours as you watch Netflix, and then they'll tell a story, and as they're telling the story, you'll fall in love with some character in one, one episode, and the next episode you're like, that guy's a dirtbag. 
By the end of 22 hours, you're like, he's the hero. It's because they've given some depth. They've shown some complexity to like how life really lives. And they don't give you resolution at the end of the episode. In fact, they intentionally put you at a moment of tension. So you go, well, I just got to see what happens next. And that's how you watch nine straight hours of TV. And that's how life works. And then so then I'm supposed to come preach to you a sermon and talk about suffering in 30 or 40 or 45, depends on who's kicking in, 45 minutes, um, and talk to you about like how does a good God allow bad things and suffering? And then we're going to talk about a topic of, of discipline, where discipline, many of you are going to think it's like a little kid who goes to grab for the cane and that's what they get. They get their hands swatted and it goes back. And so if you do bad, it's like tit for tat. And if you do bad, then anything that bad's happening in your life, God's disciplining you and so it's a punishment. No, the problem is we mistake our pain for God's punishment. And the reality is if we wanted to know about pain, God has a lot to say about it and it won't fit in a tweet. Because if you go to this book, you will see death and disease and rape and incest and robbery and all kinds, like whatever you can imagine of human tragedies are in this book and then God's commentary on those things. And so the general answer, why is there sin? Why is there pain? Yeah, there was no pain before Genesis 3. It's because sin entered the world. But every instance of pain does not directly tied to your sin. So every instance of pain is not discipline either or wrath Sometimes what's happening doesn't have anything to do with sin. Like Job, have you read Job? Like everybody knows of Job, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard this story of like the suffering and the theodicy, the problem of evil in the world. And some people think that Job was the first book written in the Bible. It's the oldest manuscripts. Obviously Genesis happened before Job, but Job might've been the first one written. In the very first verse of Job, Job chapter one and verse one says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And then look at this. If, this. if it can't get any more clear than this, it said so many times, that man was blameless and upright who feared God and turned away from evil. It's like God shouting to us, what I'm about to tell you is not because this guy sinned. Was Job a sinner? Yeah, everybody's a sinner. But you think, this is not about his sin. And then he gives us a glimpse about a world that we don't even see, a, a, a spiritual battle that's taking place between God and Satan. And Job's part of this thing happening. And then his friends come in and go, hey, Job, it's because of your sin. And you know what happens at the end of the book? Hey, your friends are idiots, paraphrase. Because they're saying stuff they don't know what they're talking about. This doesn't have anything to do with your sin. Now, at the end of the book, he repents. Because every moment of suffering is an opportunity for self-reflection. And we all have sin. But the book's really clear. This is not because of his sin. He's an upright man. He's fearless, blameless. He fears God. That's not the point. But there's some terrible suffering. And you'd think with that being maybe the first book written, clearly Hebrew wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the Jews all believe that, that Jewish guys would know that. But then you come to the New Testament. And you see these guys walking with Jesus as best friends. We call them his disciples. These guys are walking and learning with Jesus. And they see a guy who's been born blind in John chapter 9, and so then they say in front of the guy, which I think is crazy, like they say, like, I get that the disciples are still learning from Jesus and they don't know all the Bible and what it is to follow Jesus, but how about a little self-awareness, guys? <laughs> hey, was that guy born blind uh, because of his sin or his parents' sin? If I was Jesus, I'd have been like, he can hear you. <laughs> like, do you ever say, like, your kids are walking, like a five-year-old's like, what happened to that person? Like, get in the car, get in the car. We'll talk in there. It's like, but the disciples say that. Look at what Jesus says to them. Jesus makes it really clear that sometimes suffering, sometimes suffering is about sin, but sometimes there's something else happening. So as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it's not that this, sin, this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So sometimes it's not about sin. It's about a bigger plan to put God's glory on display. So are you saying that's God's plan? That God would plan for people to suffer? Doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't actually matter what you believe either. You believing something or me saying something doesn't make it true. What does God say? Also, somewhere today, there's a pastor telling this amazing conversion story of a guy who was persecuting the church and then writes a bunch of the New Testament named Saul or Paul. His name gets changed. And so Paul, if you've been around church, you've heard that story. But the problem is many of us haven't actually read it. You just go with other people telling it to you. And there's a part that most pastors leave out. Let me read it to you. So what happens is Paul is suffering. He's temporarily blind. And then God goes to a guy and says to this guy, I want you to go and pray for Saul so you can heal him of his blindness. And let me tell you why. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. So it's a plan for God's glory before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Why? For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So sometimes it's not even about sin. Sometimes it's part of a bigger plan for God's glory. But sometimes it's directly related to sin. Sometimes suffering is because of disobedience. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, if you want the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, they lied and they died. There's a summary of that story. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, there'd be an Old Testament example for you. God's wrath coming from heaven and destroying an entire place because of people's sins. Or how about this? It's a little bit more subtle. And we've probably seen and experienced this and didn't even know what was happening. The church at Corinth is told there's people in your church that are sick and then some of them have died and it's because of their sin. It's because of the way that they're taking communion, actually. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. They're treating it like it's a party. It's not a party. It's a time to reflect on the death of Jesus and your own sins and repent and they're not. And so God has gotten some of them sick and some of them have died. Directly related to their sin. So sometimes it is the way that we oftentimes think about it. Here's another category for you. Sometimes it's about disobedience. Sometimes you suffer because of obedience. In our own passage today, Hebrews chapter 12, right before that, the context is that there were these people that were faithful and walked by faith. Here, let me read you Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36. Others suffered, mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then you would think that verse 38 would say because of their sin, but it doesn't. Verse 38 says, of whom the world was not worthy. In other words, because of their obedience. So some it's because of obedience, some it's because of disobedience. Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with those things. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's disobedience. Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 20, I think it is. This is the companion of fools suffers harm. So the people you hang out with, there's a ripple effect of their bad decision-making. You will suffer. It's not just true for your kids. It's true for you. You think Joseph in the Bible? Remember, he wasn't just suffering because of his own righteousness. Sometimes that happens because of our obedience. But he flees Pharaoh's uh, wife who's, who's wanting to have an affair with him. And he's like, no, I'm out. But then because of her sin and her lying, he suffers. Sometimes the ripple effects of other people's sin is why we suffer. And so when you see somebody who's suffering, 
Don't say why, because let me tell you why. You don't know. I was telling a friend after the service, we were talking a little bit more in depth about the message, and so you're getting more second service. There you go for sleeping in. Um, I said, I remember a guy who was teaching me how to study the Bible. He like, knows Hebrew super well, knows Greek super well, and he said, you know, if, if Moses, when he crossed the Red Sea, stood there and looked back at it with his son, put his arm around his son and be like, that was incredible, and the son looked at him and said, what happened? The right answer for Moses to say is, I don't know. We need to wait for the book to come out about it. And what he was saying is, when you look at just circumstances, you don't know what God's doing because you're not that smart. When we know is when God tells us, so what does the Bible actually say? And when we say things, when we don't know, we become fools like Job's friends and we oftentimes cause more harm than good and we think we're trying to do good. I remember one time, I didn't tell the first service this either. You guys are getting all the bonus material. We're going to be here all day. Here's what happened. Uh, I was sitting with this couple, and I um, was with a friend of mine, um, the guy who led me to Christ, and we were sharing the gospel with this couple. We're in a dark moment. The context is not the point, but we're at the hospital. A lot of times in dark moments, when uh, life is at the, on the line, people get really honest. And so we're sitting in this waiting room, and we're talking, trying to tell this person how they can go to heaven, and uh, she looks at my friend and says, where's my baby? I was like, that's kind of a weird question. Um, we didn't know what she was asking. She said, before we got married, we got pregnant, we lost a baby, we went to our church, and the priest told us that our baby died because of our sin. Is that what happened? And is our baby in heaven? Whoa, that's huge. That's a huge question. First of all, I don't know if the priest was right or not. I don't know. That's the real answer. So we can say, no, 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 it wasn't because of your sin. It was or we could say, yeah, what? Like you don't, you, the right answer is, I don't know. Here's what I do know. God wants you to be in heaven. He wants you to turn from your sin. Was it that sin then? This sin now? All your sin. And turn to him. But the right answer is, I don't know. Because you don't. If you're not a follower of Christ and you're experiencing suffering, that might be an experience of God's wrath in your life. But if, these are huge words, small, small words, three letters, two letters, but if, but really large importance, but if you're a follower of Christ, your pain is never punishment because Jesus took all that punishment at the cross already. When Jesus went to the cross for your sins and died for every sin, past, present, and future, that you would ever commit he already absorbed the wrath of God. So what's happening in your life, there might, sometimes there's consequences. You break the law, you still got to go to the jail, even if you're a Christian. <laughs> but there's no condemnation, there's no retribution, there's no repayment, there's nothing happening there with God. It's already been taken care of at the cross. He does not punish you. It'd be like, it'd be like if I was going to start a business or buy a house and I went to my buddy Sphero and said, Sphero, I need you to loan me $100,000. This is you got $100,000? Spiro, Spiro's a college student. Anyway, uh, $100,000, and he loans me $100,000. And the way we write the contract is he can call for that debt to be paid at any moment. So I go, I go invest it or start or do whatever, and then he comes and he says, hey, I want my money, and I don't have it. Now, he can take me to court, and the judge can require me to pay, but I can't pay. Well, then let's just say my friend Teresa steps in, and she says, I got it. I'll pay. The debt's paid. It's satisfied. If two weeks later, Spiro comes to me and says, hey, I want 10 bucks. I, go, I already paid you. He goes, you didn't pay me. Teresa paid me. He goes, 
the debt's been satisfied. We can go back to the, the judge. It, it's not just for you to try and get more money from me because it's already been satisfied. And so God's not going to punish you for something that's already been punished at the cross. That wouldn't be just of him, and he's a just God. So God does not punish. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, you might be getting a small sample of what's coming for you in eternity. But if you're a follower of Christ, he doesn't punish you, but he does discipline you. So what is his discipline? Problem is, we oftentimes think that our pain is his punishment. It's not. So what is it? There's a promise of pleasure in this passage. He disciplines you for your delight. Now, that should cause some dissonance in your mind as I say that. Because this passage actually says in it, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It actually says it's not pleasant. Now you get this guy on stage telling you it's for delight. Like, how is that true? And here's what's supposed to happen in any relationship. So at this church, any other church you go to in the future, there's a lot of false teachers out there. Some guy stands on the stage and says something. Doesn't mean it's true. That's why you need to bring your Bible. I don't care if you bring a Bible like this or a phone or a scroll. Like, I don't care. Bring a Bible so you can go, is that what this says? What he just said, is that really here in this passage? Well, let's walk back through the passage together then. Look at it. Hebrews chapter 12. I started reading in verse 3 the first time. So it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay, so this is being written so that you'll keep going. Keep moving. You're a baby, become a toddler. You're a toddler, move on to teen. You're going to eventually grow mature in Christ. In your struggle, so let's acknowledge something that's true. There's a real struggle. In your struggle against sin, whether it's internal or external, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood. Now, Jesus did. You haven't. And have you forgotten? So what he's going to do now, this is a way, you know, I'll say like, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Back then, and have all that. He says, you, you know that it's been said. Have you forgotten? And he's quoting Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 11 and 12 right here. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And so he quotes this. And like I said before, nine times in seven verses, he uses the word discipline. The word for discipline, paidaios, it's a Greek word, comes from paios, which means child. It means training. It's training a child. The image that's being given here is of a parent training their child. So you could read everywhere it says discipline because of what some of our minds automatically go to with being disciplined poorly is that this is training that takes place. Now, that doesn't mean there's no pain. You ever been on a team? The coach makes you do down-ups and makes you run till you throw up and makes you do all this stuff. And it's like, why? Because he's mean. Now, you think that in the moment. But he's preparing you for something better. You, go to the, you don't get mad at the doctor when you have a tumor and he cuts the tumor off and it hurt your arm. You're not like, you hurt my arm. You're not like, no, you fixed my tumor. It hurts, but thank you. That's the idea here. Is it, so, it can hurt, but it's for your good. It says here, my son, do not regard lightly the training, discipline of the Lord, nor be weary and reproved when reproved by him. Okay, this still doesn't mean it's delight. It's going to say it's not pleasant in the moment. So is what the pastor's saying true? Here's the first reason why it's delightful. For, so when you see in your Bible, for, since, because, words like that, you're getting the reason. For, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So this is a sign of love. And chastises every son whom he receives. And the way that you know that it's love is because it's evidence that you're part of the family. And so if you want a sub-point, those of you who like to take notes, God's discipline reveals his love to you. That's why you can delight in his discipline. That's why it's not damaging or a duty or a disappointment, like whatever language you want to use that's bad. It's not that. It's instead delight. 
because it reveals his love. In fact, um, we use emojis and exclamation points. We want to emphasize something. We write stuff. In the Greek, the way they would do that is they would put it at the front part of the sentence. The very front part of this sentence starts with, for those he loved. It puts the love at the beginning, so you get the emphasis of what's being said here is this is love. But it's discipline. It's training. And most people don't like that. I remember when my kids were little or um, when we would discipline them at that time, you know, toddler age, I'd always sit down with them. I'd look them in the eye and go, do you, re- you know what you did? Yep. You realize that's why I respond? Yep. Do you know that I love you? Yep. Do you f- does it feel like I love you? And they would oftentimes go, nope. Nope. Doesn't feel like love. And the problem for many of us is that because we have that immature view of God's discipline is that we're babies in Christ or, or toddlers in Christ or teenagers or whatever it is, and we're like, no, you're just being mean. Like, you're just holding out, God. Like, if, I, if you have the ability to give your kids something, but you don't give it to them, now I get that we're sinful and maybe it's because you use it for yourself, like all that kind of stuff. But sometimes you don't give your kids something you can give them just so that they, you teach them they don't get everything they want because that's how life works. Like, whether you're a Christian or not, you might not believe in the resurrection, you might not believe in creation, you might not believe in any of that stuff, but just most people know that if you give somebody everything they want, they become an awful human being. Some of you have stood behind people at the line at Harris Teeter, and you're like, oh man, I wish their parents had disciplined them. This is terrible. Now we're all suffering, (laughs) right? And so parents who don't do that, either they're apathetic, which means they don't love, they actually don't love their kids, which is possible, or they're ignorant. You don't realize what you're doing to them by not setting up structures, setting up limits, preparing them for life. And that's the idea here is that when you experience God's discipline, it's evidence that you're part of his family. In fact, look at the the next part of this passage. It's uh, six times in just this few verses in verses five through eight, this language of child or sons is being used in this passage. It says in verse five, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son, or could say daughter, whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father has not disciplined? If you're left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And so in other words, if you're getting away with your sin and there, there are no, like you're actually experiencing the wrath of God. We, we think that God's wrath is just like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven, or like Ananias and fire, like people fall over dead. But Romans chapter 1 says this is the wrath of God. Then it says people exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship creation rather than the creator. Therefore, God gives them over to their sinfulness. And then it describes homosexuality and gives this list of malice and disobeying parents and like all these things. It's saying here's God's wrath. You have it. You can have what you want. Some of you can't experience the joy of God because you're under the wrath of God and you don't even know it. But if you're a follower of Christ, that wrath's already been absorbed at the cross. And instead what happens in your life is that sooner or later it comes out. I have one friend, his name's Tal Prince. He specializes in um, sexual addictions. And he says what happens for followers of Christ is always either they get convicted and they confess or they're lovingly exposed by God. The sin comes out, and that's God's love because he's caring for you. And so it's an evidence that you're part of the family. You think about how, for us, how, what's an evidence that you're part of the family? You think about your kids, and you're like, they look like me, or they got your uncle's eyes, or you got the whatever. They do this mannerism like grandpa used to do. And it's like, they're part of the family. 
How many of you here have ever done um, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, like whatever, I don't know what all the versions are. You've done one of those DNA tests that tells you about your family. There are all these stories that come out of that. And some are like, I was looking for, I was adopted and I was looking for my biological parent. There's like these feel-good stories or I had this long-lost relative and I found them. There are a lot of stories that don't turn up on the website, just so you know. So-and-so cheated and then I didn't know there was this kid out there and this happened and that. There's like, there's lots of mess that happens. They don't publicize that usually. Um, I read one story this week that had come out of two women that had been separated at birth 57 years ago. It's in Oklahoma if you want to look it up on your own. It's like the, the story sounds almost like a Lifetime movie, except it's not happy because they weren't pumped about it. And it was not this great reunion. And so the one woman that's telling the story says that what happened was her daughter wanted to do one of these DNA tests. And so the daughter was looking for her grandparents that they couldn't find. So she did this DNA test, but it came back with a totally different family tree. They call customer service at Ancestry.com, talk to them for hours, like, it's all, all this information is the right information. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. You, you go handle it yourself. And so she does a bunch of research, long story short, finds out they were switched at birth at the hospital. And didn't, neither person knew. They found this woman who was the, the actual birth child of the mother. Mother's still alive. So they went to the mom and said, hey, we think this is what happened. Have you ever seen this person? And the mom said, it was like they ripped my heart out because when I looked at the picture, she looked just like me. She had never seen this person in her life. You can look up the details if you want, but they knew because of the evidence. And evidence that you are God's child is you can't get away with sin. God disciplines you. He loves you. It's because he loves you that he disciplines you and it's an evidence of your salvation that he disciplines you. So that's one reason to delight in. Another one is because he's good. It says in verse 9, Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So our earthly fathers disciplined us, and we knew that they were doing it because they loved us, but then God disciplines us, and, and, and he's even greater, and he's all-knowing. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God does it ultimately for our good, and he is good. And so you think about Think about God's discipline that he's never going to give you a bad gift. Matthew chapter 7. He only gives bread and you don't, he's not going to give you a stone. He's not going to give you a snake. Like he's, going to, he's not giving you things for your harm. So even when you suffer, that's actually for your good. And so these are gifts that are being given from a good father and he always does it the right way. Like parents, sometimes we discipline, overly discipline, underly discipline, discipline the wrong. Have you ever disciplined the wrong kid like you found out about it? I was like, we live in this time frame where like all the, I was watching a basketball game the other day and they went to the, the booth to get the, um, the instant replay. I remember watching basketball before there was instant replay. I was like, they made a bad call, whatever, keep moving. And now, they've, now they go back and it's like everything's criticized. And I thought, what a terrible job to be a ref. Have you thought about this? Like who signs up to be a referee? If, if there's no glory, because if you do your job perfectly, no one thinks about you. But there's a lot of grief every time you make a mistake, at least half the audience is on you, okay? I was at a youth soccer game the other day, and I was, I was very concerned for the official and his optical health. I didn't think that he had been for his checkups. And so I was trying to share that with him in a passionate way, and my wife came up to me, and she grabbed my arm. It was like an assist of the Holy Spirit. She grabbed my arm. She said, honey, that's enough, that's enough. And I, and I said, it's just a game. Like, it's just a game. I was telling myself to calm down, and then it's just a game. Because we're there. We're there to tell them when there's a mistake. Who would sign up to be a ref? And then I thought, parents, we sign up to be refs. When you, have, when you have multiple kids, I don't know. If you have one, I don't know that they fight with themselves. We've got four. They definitely have conflict. We'll just call it that. 
And there's been times, and my kids have actually shown me before times when I've thought the wrong, I've disciplined them, and then they come back with an iPad and say, look, video replay, you were wrong. They make fun of me about it now. And, uh, and I was wrong. And I make mistakes. Your Heavenly Father doesn't. And he does it for your good. And if you want to know that it's good, and you want to know that it's not punishment, sometimes he actually does it just to protect you from sin. It's not even because you're sinning. It's not to, to make you more holy in the sense we've got to purify you in some way and get rid of some junk. That's always there. And if you don't think that's true, have you ever read the passage? We talk about it sometimes, where, but have you read it yourself? It's not preacher, but you've read it yourself. Where, where in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. And he says, I prayed that God would take it away, and God said no. And then we focus on his grace and all that stuff. But have you read why? Did you know why he has a thorn in the flesh? We always argue about what the thorn in the flesh is. Who cares? Look at why he has it. So, so to keep me from becoming conceited, it wasn't because he was conceited. It's not because of his pride. It's to protect him from becoming proud. To keep me from becoming conceited, of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, to protect me from myself. Remember what parents of toddlers do? Yeah, God's doing that for us. You don't even know it sometimes, that suffering's coming into your life to protect you from you. He's good. And he's teaching you to grow you in obedience. Here's a passage a lot of Christians don't like, so we'll wrap up with a verse like this, and then you can all email Pastor Dave. Here's what it says. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, this is about Jesus, by the way, and here's what, that's why Christians don't like it. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Oh. That doesn't mean he was disobedient, and that's the problem most Christians have. Wait a minute, what have you, some of your translations even say he was made perfect. Hmm. He wasn't perfect? Not, it's not talking about moral perfection, it's talking about completeness. His obedience was incomplete because he hadn't obeyed everything that God had for him to do yet, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. So he's learning as he takes steps of faith, as he continues to trust the Father, he's growing in obedience. There's more and more obedience for there to be. And how did that happen? What has God, through what he suffered. We know it wasn't about his sin because in the chapter right before that it says he was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Those of you who want to study that. But if you don't think that that's about his delight, that he's allowing the suffering, using the suffering, sometimes bringing the suffering, and he's good and it's love, and you still don't think, you still think, he, you know, pastors had delight. I still think it's terrible. Look at the last verse. For the moment, all discipline, all discipline seems painful. And then what's the contrast word? Rather than pleasant, that's the word pleasure, but, contrast, contrast, but, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. He's training you so you can experience righteousness, not just positional righteousness before God, which you are. The moment you trust Christ, you're completely forgiven. You're not earning anything, but you still live here where, where the penalty for sin has been taken care of, but there's still the presence of sin because you're in this place. And there's still a power of sin. It's in you. You're fighting against yourself even sometimes. No, this is possible. Victory is possible. This is the fruit. That's the point of the training. That's the point of the discipline so that you can experience the righteousness and peace. And peace. Peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness. There's one guy I read this week. This is the way he defined it. He said this. It means, peace, the bringing together of what was separated the picking up of the pieces, the healing of wounds, the fulfillment of the incomplete, the overcoming of the forces of fragmentation. It reminds me of the guy I was listening to talking about 
fighting that alligator, that crocodile, sorry, crocodile. I'm not a biologist. And uh, he's there, his legs all mangled up, and he's laying on the bank. It seems like that's over at that point. Like, the, the, so then he made it, right? Well, no. He says, the next part of the story is, he says, a crocodile is an elite predator, and if it thinks it's gonna, it can get you, it will. And he said, I'm laying here on the bank, I'm vulnerable, and there's a crocodile in this deep water right next to me. My friend Sully is on the other side of the bank. And he said, I watched my friend Sully. He didn't hesitate. He dove into the water, began to swim, and then he started walking. It was about chest deep. Started walking through the water, knowing there's a crocodile in it. He comes and he grabs me, puts me on his shoulder, carries me up to safe ground, then takes his shirt off, wraps my legs so that it stops bleeding, and then we call a helicopter, or uh, I think it was an airplane, that came in and flew him out of there so he could get legitimate medical treatment and be made whole. He survived. And then I think about Jesus. The one we're supposed to keep our eyes on. The one who did struggle with sin to the point of shedding blood. Who left heaven. There's an enemy. Roaring lion, crocodile, whatever image you want to use. Uh, he suffered the death for us. But didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He offers you eternal life. But you stay here. But you stay here after you trust Christ. You don't automatically go to heaven. And he's like, yeah, but then I'm going to equip you. And I wonder, this is a tough application. I wonder if there are believers here today that want Jesus bad enough to pray for God's discipline in your life so that you can experience him more. Father, we come before you and I ask that you give us a burning passion for your son Jesus that we would view him as the joy, the ultimate joy in our lives, like we talked about last week, that we would realize that even your discipline is for our delight so that we would know you, so that we, as we pursue holiness, that the fruit is holiness, that the fruit is of your discipline, righteousness and peace. Everyone here wants peace. Everyone in the world wants joy and, and fullness, and they know there's an emptiness. You told us there's an emptiness in our hearts that you made that can only be filled by you, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Father, I pray that if, if we haven't had that filled by you, you'd make us more and more empty until we have to turn to you, make people here miserable that don't know you. But the ones that do know you, Father, will you put in us a fire, a burning fire to come after you to where we'd, we'd even say, God, if discipline's what it takes... I want to know you and the power of your resurrection, but also the fellowship of your sufferings. I'll suffer if that's what it takes for me to know you and to make you known. If that's part of a bigger plan to make you glorified, I submit to your suffering. If that's part of the plan to, to purge me of sin, I submit to your suffering. If, that, if it doesn't have anything to do with my sin or other people's sin or any of that, even in the moment I turn, there's things to repent of. Some of you might need to repent right now in this moment. But would you go after Jesus with all you have? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.